0: Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the podcast from Dream Queen's Medical Centre Nottingham. In this episode we'll be discussing the Mental Health Act and Mental Capacity. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, welcome back to Take Orally. Jamie Thomas here, teaching fellow in emergency Medicine, once again joined by Dr. James Ellison. Hello. Thank you very much for coming back, James. Um, We've previously... uh, we uh, recorded a podcast together looking at very generic, uh, general uh, look at psychiatry, depression, psychosis, etc. And, and the approach to patients. There's a much more specific uh, podcast in, in this, uh, this episode looking at the Mental Health Act, Mental Capacity Act. Um, Certainly something that affects a lot of what we can do in Mm -hmm. A&E, no doubt also in your own line of work and I think this is an area of the law where we are expected to know as clinicians what we can and can't do. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we always hear this term they're on a section, they've been sectioned, etc. Which is always quite funny when I was a fourth year medical student because you went from Obs and Guy, where being sectioned meant one thing, <laughs> to psychiatry, where being sectioned meant something completely different. Um, so we're going to look at specific sections uh, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 136. And
1: I'll tell you about
0: 135 as well. And 135 as well. A little bonus. Bonus bit that I didn't even ask for. <laughs> Fantastic, James. You are spoiling us. Yeah. Um so, shall we start in, in a numerical order? Yeah. Well, shall
1: I just give you a little bit of an overview of the mental health act? Actually, even better. Yeah, go just, with that. Just, just. Well, first of all, so the, so the mental health act is, as, as it says on the tin, it is a, a piece of legislation that deals with treating uh, or deals with people diagnosed with mental disorder and, and how how we can treat them uh, and, uh, and and often how how we can treat them against their wishes, which is quite opposite to a lot of what we do in, in medicine, you know, we, in, we we always want patients to consent to their treatment but um, a lot of mental illnesses mean that the patients will refuse treatment when actually it's in their best interests um, to receive treatment and the reason that they are refusing is because of their mental illness. So, yeah. so we need a, a, a legisl- legislative structure um, to ensure that we can treat people. now. We talk about sectioning and section. They're on section this and that and the other. Sectioning is actually a, a colloquial term. It's yeah. not. It's not a real legal term, um, although it's used by you know everyone. Um, essentially, the, the 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 Mental Health Act has a number of sections. Those are actually the sections of the written act. Yeah, and. Um, if someone is detained under a section of the mental health act that is the description of that 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 written piece of of the act so that's what it means but but i i will use the word section um, as a verb which it is not <laughs> but uh, in this context but um you know it it's it, it's used so widely that that's how it's understood thank you um i guess also to, to just before we talk about the individual sections is, is about People who are involved in yes, yeah, in the mental health act and who, who does what. Um, so the uh, I guess if we talk about the context of, of section two, which is is um, uh, an assessment section, uh, that is uh, it's an assessment order. Essentially, that that allows uh, a patient to be. Um, detained for up to 28 days and up to is the important thing it's not they have to be detained for 28 days it's up to 28 days for the purposes of assessment of their mental disorder and they can be treated during that time because treatment is part of the assessment okay. if they respond to treatment yeah. they will help us establish what their diagnosis yeah. is and what their difficulties and formulation are yeah. um, but if we think about who, how someone gets on to a section 2 yeah. Or, or becomes detained under Section 2 of the Mental Health Act. Um, there needs to be two doctors, and so an approved mental health professional, or um, uh, an AMP, is what used to be called in the in the old days a an approved social worker. So in 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 the previous Act, uh, so the Act was amended in 2007. Um, in the uh, Mental Health Act 1983, it was just social workers who could act in that role. Now other professions other than social workers can act as an AMP, Um, but in reality actually most AMPs are still social workers, Um, and they have uh, additional expertise and training in mental health uh, and mental illness, and so so we were talking about having a patient, uh, a patient becoming detained in Section 2 of the Mental Health Act, the AMP and these two doctors will assess that patient Um, now at least one of those doctors needs to be section 12 approved so section 12 approval again this refers to a section of the act section 12 uh, and it describes um, doctors who have special experience in the diagnosis or treatment of mental disorder Um, now the two types of doctors that can become section 12 approved are psychiatrists and gps to be a psychiatrist in Section 12 approved, you need to become a member of the Royal College of psychiatrist, be in good standing, and do an extra training course, and then that's something that you renew. Uh, likewise, for a GP, you have to have a special interest in mental health and mental illness, and do the training course, and, and it's something, that, again, that you have to keep in, in, in good standing with your Royal College and, and renew. So for a mental health assessment for a, a Section 2, uh, you need one of those doctors to be Section 12 approved. If not both. If not both. So the second doctor should really, in the ideal world, have previously met and be be aware of the, the patient. Now, understandably, in the emergency department, in the middle of the night especially, that's not possible. So the next best thing is to have two Section 12 approved doctors. Um, and often, um, when a mental health assessment occurs in the, in the emergency department, that will be the on-call psychiatry registrar and a, a GP from the out-of-bounds GP service who is section 12 approved. So you'll have two section 12 approved doctors. Th- those rules can be flouted um, uh, um, uh, if you can't get two section 12 approved doctors. You can have one Section 12 approved doctor and one non-Section 12 approved doctor. Mm. But that's kind of worst case scenario. Sure, yeah. So the AM, who is responsible for identifying the doctors to do the assessment, will first of all try for a Section 12 approved doctor and a doctor who knows the patient, preferably Section 12 approved. Next down the list is one Section 12 approved, um, doctor, uh, no, sorry, two Section Twelve approved doctors, and then next is one Section Twelve approved and one non Section Twelve approved. It's all very complicated, <laughs> but essentially, the reason that's important is if you are the uh, an SHO or a, or a registrar in the AE department, and the AMP can't find two Section Twelve approved doctors, they may ask you to act as one of the assessing doctors. Yeah, and that's why you need to know about this so you, you as a as an a and doctor an ED doctor couldn't undertake a mental health assessment with one of your colleagues because you need one of you to be section 12 approved yeah Does that makes sense absolutely yeah? yeah um the other thing is that there is a although although the the rule, as such, was removed in the 2007 Act. It's still best practice to ensure that the two doctors aren't in a, a direct line of management, Yeah. Or, so you shouldn't have a consultant and their registrar. Mm. Um, although that's no longer set in stone in, in the Act, it's still best practice to have a degree of independence, so you have doctors who are you know because the register so you feel that you can disagree exactly exactly and that and the reason for having these two doctors and an, an, an amp there is to protect the patient It's to ensure that you can't just on the whim of one person say this person needs to be detained yeah so it's it, it's it's about protecting the patient's rights sure um, and in general and I'll tell you about the specific sections in, 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 in a bit but the The way way that a mental health assessment is is run is essentially it it is uh, a conversation with the patient where you assess what their mental health is like and you assess their symptoms and their thoughts and their um, experiences and their behaviours and those kind of things. Um, The main thing is that to be detained under the Mental Health Act you need to have a mental disorder, so you need to have some symptoms of mental illness. A uh, mental disorder is really broadly defined in the mental health act. It doesn't include intoxication, and, and so that, that's important, but, but generally, you can have any, any kind of mental disturbance. Um, and it's, so, that, so that's, that's the key thing. The other thing is that there needs to be some sort of risk yeah, and that risk can be to other people. It can be to themselves. It could be deterioration in their mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, it could even be to protect property. Um, you know, if someone says they're going to set a house on fire, that you know that is a reason. But there needs to be some sort of risk. Yeah. So generally, it's to their own health, to their own, to their own safety, protection of other people. But that does include property. Sure. Um, and. So that assessment is usually done as a group with the two doctors and the AMP, and then the two doctors will make a recommendation. They'll fill in what's called a medical recommendation um, and present that to the, if they think the patient should be detained, they present that to the AMP and if the AMP agrees the amp will make uh, an application to have the patient detained. So it's quite a complex legal process, yeah. which you don't need to know the exact of, but you do need to know if you're going to be involved. Sure.
0: And who particularly leads in that discussion in the mental health assessment, or can it just, there isn't a
1: specific yeah there's, yeah, there's no set rule. Um, it, it will often be the psychiatrist, sure. uh, uh, but sometimes I, I've done a setup with GPs who, who are, you know, they'd like to do a two hander so we'll, we'll, we'll just ask questions. As they crop up, sure, Um, or or sometimes the GP will take the lead if they know the patient, sure. Um, And the AMP isn't just there as a silent, uh, you know, participant, they will ask questions as well, sure, Um, because they need to be satisfied that the patient should be detained as well. Um, So it's important that they're involved. Um, And if you are involved in a, in a a Mental Health Act assessment as an A&E doctor or a ward doctor in a surgical ward or a medical ward, the, the important thing to remember is that there is a joint recommendation that can be filled in by one doctor and then signed by both doctors. We're discouraged from using them because legally you can't correct them. So if there's a mistake on the form, it has to be completely redone, mm. and that, that's difficult if you find out only halfway home and you have to come back and fill it and correct it. But often, when there isn't an experienced doctor, we will do a joint recommendation. So the Section 12 approved doctor will fill the form in sure. and then hand it to the uh, to the um, non Section 12 approved doctor to count a sign. But there's no special trick to writing a recommendation. Essentially. You just have to write it in plain English and justify why, the per- why you think the person, or suspect the person has a mental disorder, why you think that they may be at risk or there are risks associated, and why they can't be treated in the community. Because if any of those things are fulfilled, then there's no need, need to detain them. But, so as, and, and you just justify that in plain English, and, and that, that's satisfactory. Um, the one common mistake that people will make on some of the section forms is the, is detaining themselves. Um, strangely, the the name the name of the patient isn't in the first box; it's the name of the medical practitioner, which is in the first box. So you may so end up
0: detaining yourself it, under the mental it, health it, act. It, it,
1: it is possible. It's also you know you need to be careful with the dates. I once detained someone on my birthday, <laughs> and obviously. You're much more used to writing your birth date with your d- year of birth at the end, mm. and I completed it and had, uh, in, in, in effect, detained the patient 33 years prior, um, <laughs> or thereabouts. Um, show me age there. But, uh, that 21 was, years. Yeah, right? <laughs> that was picked up by the and corrected at the time, so it's fine. Okay. Like,
0: so be very careful with it.
1: Yeah, and just uh, but the, the form is really self-explanatory, and you can just read through the form. So that's will really tell where you can get the forms if you need them. But there should always be out there to give you the form, so you'll be fine. Awesome. So, in terms of section 2, 3, blah, 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 I'll just rattle through them. So, a, a section 2 is uh, an assessment order, um, and it's up to 28 days, it can't be renewed, and um, it is, as it, as it says on the tin, it's for assessment of the patient's mental um, mental disorder. Uh, patients can be treated, against their will if required so that's things like um, depot injections or IM injections can be given under the under the auspices of that section um, and at the end of that 28 days it either lapses um, or it can be renewed and when the patient is detained on, on a section two they they need to be detained to a mental health ward um, and that is, that's the rule, unless of course there is a, a significant physical health condition. So if the patient uh, has peritonitis, a mental health ward is the best place for them. They can still be on a section, but they would be sectioned to the surgical ward, for example. Sure. Um, and as I said, the the at the end of the section. Um, it either lapses, but that's bad practice. Really, to let a section lapse, you should you should make an active decision to yeah. end a section or to continue it. You shouldn't just let it time out, because if the patient doesn't need to be tamed, you should have actively brought them off the section and had them as a as a voluntary patient yeah. before that, rather sure. than just letting it time out. Um, you can yeah. renew it and then and then apply section three. The section three is um, a treatment order and it lasts for up to six months initially um, and then it can be renewed thereafter. Now you can detain someone from the first mental health assessment, for example if we assess them in A&E or in their home, you can detain them straight onto a section three. Okay. Um, but only if you, the patient's known and we know what the condition is that they're suffering from and we have established um, what that the pattern of their illness is. Um, if we don't know the patient from Adam, then we, would, we wouldn't go with the section 3. We always go with the section 2 as the first, um, as the first um, section that we use. Um, now when the patient is detained to a ward, they're not allowed to leave unless they, give, they can stay they can stay within the hospital grounds, but they're not allowed to leave the hospital grounds unless they're given what's called Section 17 leave. And, and technically, that even covers trips to A&E. So if a patient injures themselves or otherwise needs to come to the emergency department and they're on a mental health ward, technically, they need Section 17 leave to come to the hospital, to the acute hospital. Now, obviously, the main thing is looking after patients. So that can be done retrospectively, it can be done remotely if required. But that section 17 can only be authorised and signed by the consultant in charge of that patient's care. Um, But that's often, if you see someone who's come from a mental health ward and they're on a section, section two, section three, the reason that they're there is because there is Section 17 leave to allow them there. Sure. And that Section 17 leave says where they're allowed to go, for how long, whether they need someone with them, whether they can be on their own, those kind of things. Sure. And so those are the two main sections that you will all come across.
0: And in both, I think, because this is something that a number of my colleagues have faced in, in OSCE scenarios and then in college questions, Uh, A patient is on a section 3, who um, is being detained on a section 3 for a psychiatric illness, Mm -hmm. comes to A&E with a medical illness Mm -hmm. and refuses treatment for that medical illness. What can you do? And the fact is that Section 3 covers the mental illness, it doesn't cover the medical illness, and and that's the the thing to be aware of. So the Mental
1: Health Act only covers treatment for mental illness and its its direct consequences. So that can include some physical treatments. Um, So for example, if a patient has anorexia, then nasogastric feeding can be authorised under the Act because it's treating a consequence of the anorexia Mm. but peritonitis is not a consequence of mental mental illness and therefore you need another way of treating that that patient which would be the mental capacity act which we will talk about I guess when we've we've covered the mental health act but that's a really important point is that the mental health act can only be used to treat mental illness. Yeah. So we've looked at two and three. There is a four. There is a four. But it's very rare. I think I've seen it once in my career. And it's often used in remote or rural areas where you can't um, get two doctors. And it, it means that just one doctor and an app can detain a patient. But it's a really short. Detention. It's seventy-two hours, so it's essentially an emergency section to get that person onto a mental health ward. And in that seventy-two hours, a, a formal mental health ass- act assessment with two doctors and an should take place. So you won't t- tend to see them in large cities, um, but in in the countryside where you logistics. Think, logistically you've got a patient who needs to be in hospital because they're very risky, but you can't get two doctors. Section four would apply. Okay.
0: Uh, and then after four comes five.
1: That, that's how numbers work. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, section five... Med
0: school wasn't wasted.
1: Um, <laughs> section five, um, there's, there's two two holding powers uh, that, that you need to be aware of under section five, and that's section five two, and section five four. I'll tell you about them in reverse order, um, because... That's often the order that they're applied on a mental health ward. Um, on a mental health ward, we have voluntary patients who are colloquially known as informal patients who are there because they have agreed to come into the ward, um, and we have detained patients who are under a section. Now, if you have a voluntary patient who then refuses to be on the ward, they want to leave, but there are concerns that they shouldn't because of risk, then you need to use a holding power to prevent them from leaving. So Section 5.4 is the nurse's holding power. And that is a a form that the nurse fills in, and it has to be a mental health nurse or a learning disability nurse. Those are the only nurses that can fill them in. And therefore, they're really only used on a mental health ward, sure. And that's for six hours and it, the purpose of it is to prevent the patient from leaving until a doctor can arrive to assess them for a 5-2 yeah so it starts starts uh, the clock and it lasts for six hours it ends as soon as the doctor arrives to assess the patient and then the, the doctor and, and, and to fill in the 5-4 the nurse just says i think this patient needs to remain to be assessed by a the doctor they just tick a box and sign sure then when the doctor arrives to, uh, to assess the 5.2 and, and in the act it's very clear who can do a section five two assessment and who can, but I'll tell you about that in a second. The doctor assesses the patient and they have to fill in, if they think the patient shouldn't leave, they fill in a form to explain why, essentially saying, I think they're mentally unwell because of X, Y and Z, I think they're risky because of X, Y and Z, I think they should stay in hospital. Um, and and then you, you sign. Um, and that five two section five two lasts for seventy two hours. If there was a five four preceding it, the clock starts when the five four started. Um, now, the important thing about the section five two is, it in the act it says that it can only be done, only be completed by the rep- responsible commission or, or the the consultant in charge of that that patient's care. Mm. Or their nominated deputy, mm. and this gets a lot of acute trusts unstuck, because in psychiatric trusts, in mental health trusts, there's a very clear, um, a very clear criteria for who the nominated deputy is, and there can only ever be one nominated deputy of the responsible clinician at any one time. Right, and that's where there's problems, because in an acute trust, there's Often several medical registrars. Yes. There's Several surgical registrars. You know, who is that one nominated deputy? Mm. And acute trusts don't have policies to say who the nominated deputy is. Sure. So, so therefore, if you uh, so for for example in the psychiatric trust, the two people that can detain a patient are. The consultant in charge of the patient's care, or in my trust, it is the on-call SHO. It's not that consultant's SHO, it's the person identified on the rotor.
0: As on-call. As on-call
1: at that time. For fixed, a fixed list of wards. Yeah, so that is, mm-hmm. the, that is the nominated deputy for those wards. Um, so it has to be one of those two people. Obviously, out of hours, it's the SHO because the consultants are home in bed. But they could be asked to come out, come out and do it mm-hmm. if necessary. Mm-hmm. Now, in an acute hospital, for example, the Queens Medical Center, you don't have that system. You don't have that nominated system. So, the if someone is acutely, mentally unwell on a medical ward or a surgical ward, and they want to leave, and you think they should remain because they're mentally unwell and risky, mm-hmm. The person that has to do that is the consultant in charge of that person's care. Okay. And that's really important because if the registrar does it, if the SHO does it, it's an illegal detention that can be really serious. Sure. Yeah? It's not ideal because, obviously, in the middle of the night, the medical consultant on call, who is the consultant in charge of that person's care at that time, doesn't really want to come in and do that paperwork. But that's, that's the way the law works. So, and, it, and it does get misinterpreted a lot so you mm-hmm. will find that the, the registrar has detained someone and they haven't really detained them mm-hmm. and, it, and it can get us into a lot of difficulties.
0: And when we're talking about the you know the patient cannot leave the ward, if they are physically attempting to leave the ward Will they be restrained? Will they be?
1: So mental health wards and, and most physical health wards actually are, are locked you know, so, yeah. so the doors are locked if the patient is trying to leave the, the barrier the first barrier is the, the, the locked door um, obviously if the patient is trying to leave trying to sneak out trying to run out then then we can use restraint. Um, I think the important thing to to realize is that all the staff on mental health wards are trained or, or most of the staff are trained to safely restrain sure. patients and we wouldn't expect um, staff in the emergency department or on, on general medical wards, surgical wards to be restraining mm. because first of all you, you might injure yourself, mm. you you might not do it safely, you might injure the patient. Mm. Um, so that's what the security staff are there for um, in, in the hospital, they, they take that responsibility. Um, but um, on, on the mental health boards it's the, the nursing staff would we'll be able to do that sure
0: uh, and so then we're on to well, you you've snuck in 135 and, and 136. I did
1: so I'll tell you about 136 which is the most common and we see uh, a lot of this in the emergency department yeah so 136 is um, is a um, essentially a holding power that a police officer has um, and the, it applies to people who are in a public place so, it so can't, they can't be put in at home they cannot um, and it is also frowned upon if not blatantly illegal to tempt someone out of their house in order to detain them on 136 yeah. Yeah? so it has to be somewhere that's publicly accessible so the emergency department is publicly accessible anyone can walk in Yes, it's this it is a public place, and therefore it's a public place. Um, and um, the threshold is is quite low because um, police they don't have extensive training in mental health matters. That's not their primary purpose, um, and therefore it. It's essentially if the police uh, officer has a suspicion that the person is mentally unwell, they can detain the patient under Section 136. Um, And the purpose of the Section is to transport that patient to a place of safety. Now, a place of safety is very clearly defined in the Act. we have dedicated Section 136 suites. Uh, in Nottingham, the suite used to be at Queen's Medical Centre but was moved to Highbury Hospital and police will usually take patients direct to the Section 136 suite. Um, however, if there is a concern about their physical health, say they've taken an overdose or they've hurt themselves in some way, the police will bring them to the emergency department quite rightly. But the patient is the responsibility of the police officer until they are taken to a place of safety and therefore it's important that the police officer stays with the patient they generally will not be very happy about that because their feeling is that they could be out on the streets fighting crime but that's the way the act is written and that's that's what must happen there have been attempts to redefine the emergency department as a place of safety but i don't think that would be appropriate at all um, it's a very, uh, you know, it's very kind of chaotic and uh, yeah. and and uh, and rowdy place often in the nursing department, and it's not really safe for people who are mentally unwell no. to be uh, to be in, in A and E, and that, it's often the worst place to be. Absolutely, um, the the thing about all sections is you cannot tell another doctor or another professional to detain someone, you cannot instruct them to do that. Sure. So, on the wards, a consultant can't put, if the patient asks to leave, detain them on a uh, a section uh, 5.2. Can't do that. It's really, you know, because you're, it's the individual assessing doctor's opinion. Likewise, you can't tell a police officer, detain that man on a section one three six. It's the police officer's own judgment. However, I have being in a situation in the emergency department where there was a patient who was clearly extremely unwell, very paranoid, and was finding A&E extremely stimulating, winding him up, and he was very close to assaulting the security staff, getting himself hurt, other people hurt, and he was clearly extremely unwell, and it wasn't it wasn't in his in his best interests to keep him in the department mm. until the Mental Health Act assessment could be um, sure arranged. I spotted a police officer <laughs> and walked over to the police officer, and I explained, I know that I can't, and I said who I was, I know that I can't tell anyone to detain anyone, but do you think that patient over there looks mentally unwell? And left it at that, and the patient was duly detained on the Section 136. Me, the patient is dad and the police officer got in the police van we drove around the, circum- <laughs> the circumference of queens medical center and took it to four where things were a lot calmer and things mm. de-escalated sure thing. so i didn't tell the police officer to do it but we we got the right outcome Came to an yeah. agreement yeah. the very very uh quick mention of section 135 which you don't really we won't encounter in a necessarily, but section 135 is where a patient is in their own property and you need to gain access to it. As we said, 136 is only in a public place. Section 135 is where the AMP applies to a magistrate for an order to enter the property. And essentially, the AMP and the doctors turn up with police and often a locksmith. So they, they to will gain entry. They will gain entry somehow. Uh, the most recent one that I was aware of, thankfully, they, they, they went to the house and they didn't need to use the Section 135 because the patient let them in. But it's there for those situations where you need to gain access to a patient who's unwell and probably risky, but you can't get in there to assess them. So. Mm. Um, but yes, it's not something that obviously that you'll see in a but it's important to know that that power exists.
0: So that's really the, the Mental Health Act, mm-hmm. um, MHA, that we've, we've looked at. So if we now take a moment, we, we've sort of talked about it a little bit earlier, about mental capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and just touch on, on what are our rights, what are our duties when it comes to capacity.
1: Well, I think the, the, the thing to realise, although like, the, the Mental Health Act is, is the realm of psychiatrists and it, it's what we are expert in, and expect it to be so, and another another specialties would have a kind of a passing knowledge of it. The Mental Capacity Act is really something that, that all doctors and all healthcare professionals really should have a, a, a working knowledge of, yeah. um, because as we said before, the Mental Health Act can't be used to treat um, physical illnesses, but the Mental Capacity Act can. Um, and it's actually, it's quite simple to assess capacity. Um, well, first of all, there's an assumption that everyone has capacity, unless you suspect that they don't. Yes. <laughs> um, and in that situation, you would assess their capacity to make a decision. Um, decisions, and, well, capacities. First of all, is decision specific. So most people can decide whether they want a cup of tea or whether they, you know, whether they want a sandwich or not. Yeah. But. Uh, they might not be able to make decisions about where they live or what medical treatment they have. Yeah. So uh, those and those. So it's about the specific decision. It's also it's, it it changes. It, yes. It's dynamic. So someone might lack capacity, and they might regain capacity later, or vice versa. Classic example of that is a patient who comes in intoxicated. Yes. If they're drunk, they have. So, so the, you need to have a, a disorder of, or disturbance of the brain or mind, which intoxication with alcohol is? Absolutely. But, and and, and it's, your, it's your responsibility, if you want to treat them, you have to do everything you can to uh, try and enable them to have capacity. Um, but actually, with the intoxication, they will regain capacity as yes. a natural process of building of the alcohol in the system. So, um, so that's a, a good example of how capacity can vary. Um, so, as, as, I was, as I was saying, to, to lack capacity, you need to have a, a, a disorder or a disturbance of the brain or mind. And then I think as, as hopefully most, most people know you need to be able to understand a, uh, the information that's given to you and you to be able to retain that information for long enough to make a decision. You need to be able to weigh up that information in order to make that decision and then communicate that decision back to the person. And. That communication can be in any form of language, it can be in sign language, it can be written, uh, and we need to do everything we can to enable people to have capacity. So, we need to provide interpreters, or um, we might uh, deliver information in a specific, accessible format. Those kinds sure of things. Thing. The really important thing to remember is the patient doesn't need to, they don't need to understand every single possible detail of a situation to make a decision on it. They only need to understand the pertinent details. This could kill you. Exactly. Um, And, you know, I work with people who use substances. Yeah. and, And most of my patients, even though I work with people who have really serious mental illnesses, most of them have capacity to make a decision whether to take heroin or not. Yeah. Because all they need to know is, heroin is bad for you and it can kill you. Yeah, they know that. Yeah. So they have and even though they have a disturbance of their brain or mind, they they can understand, retain, weigh up and communicate a decision so they have capacity.
0: They don't need to know about mu opioid receptors exactly. and all of that. Exactly. And, yeah. and and
1: this is the important thing as well, is that the decision the patient makes doesn't have to be a wise one.
0: Yes, yeah, you, are, you
1: are allowed to. You are allowed to make unwise decisions, as most of my patients do, they take heroin, they take all sorts of drugs and, and drink too much. And, and, and even away from those extremes, we all make unwise decisions at times. You know, we, we, might, we might drink too much, we eat too much, we might drive fast cars, those, you know, that is part of being human is making unwise decisions. Yes. But as long as we can be certain that that unwise decision is made, without, you know, either without a disturbance of, of brain and mind, and if that's the case, then they, you don't go any further with the assessment, or if they have a disturbance of brain and mind, but they can, they can understand, uh, retain, weigh up, and communicate, even if it's an unwise decision, that is, you know, that's fine. And there are tools, structured tools that you can use to document that capacity assessment, and they should be available on the trusted
0: And, you know, if in doubt, Speak to a senior, and, and I, I've known yeah. consultants actually ring up uh, in A and E, ring up the on-call solicitor. Yes, and, 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 and that's the, the extreme example. No, no, but, but, it, but where do we stand? What am I? Because would
1: I be facing an
0: assault and battery
1: charge? Definitely, work? definitely. And, and I, I'm glad you said speak to a senior or speak to a solicitor. The answer isn't speak to a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, because psychiatrists are not are not the people to assess capacity the person to assess capacity is the person offering the treatment yeah Yeah. Um, and that's and that's important because if uh, for example we've got a patient who uh, is, needs a, a needs a, an abdominal operation for peritonitis yeah. I don't understand the ins and outs of that anymore, I used to at one point, know mm-hmm. the basics, but I'm not the appropriate person to present the information yeah. to the patient. The appropriate person to do that is a surgeon. Yes. Um, so, the assessing capacity isn't a special skill for psychiatrists, it's a skill that we should all have as, as, as doctors and healthcare professionals. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And to be aware, like you said, it's fluid, that you can come in and out of it as well. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And decision-specific.
0: And decision-specific. Excellent. Um, you mentioned earlier about some resources, especially with the Mental Health Act. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so... may be found?
1: The, 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 the one website that I would really recommend is mentalhealthlaw.co.uk and it is absolutely exhaustive. <laughs> it has everything that you might need. Now, outside of... Psychiatry, you probably won't need a lot of the stuff that's there. It's got things about case law and and things like that. But the forms, the statutory forms are all on there. So if you want to know what Section 2 form looks like, you can see what it looks like on there. They've also got links to, you can can read the whole text of the Mental Health Act if you wish. Wow. I wouldn't recommend it. (laughs) Um, But there's links to the Code of Practice and the Reference Guide, and those are really helpful because they kind of distill it down to what we should do, what we shouldn't do. Um, So mentalhealthlaw.co.uk is a really, really good website, Um, and it covers not just the Mental Health Act, but the Mental Capacity Act as well, Mm -hmm. Um, and DOLS, which um, is part of the Mental Capacity Act. Um, So so that's a really good resource.
0: So I think a very, very important uh, part of the law, medical-legal aspect that we think we all need to be at least aware of, and as you said, with capacity, we need to be actually au fait with. It's, as you said, it's not just the realm of psychiatrists. Um, and it's certainly it's a part of my medical school exams that I very much remember was the bits of the act, because they made it very local. So they said, a patient is seen in Victoria Centre Nottingham. What can you do? And it's uh, yeah, that definitely stuck with me. Um, brilliant. Anything else, James? No. Or with, uh, oh, bits. Awesome. Thank you very much, James. Thank you. That was the Mental Health Act and Mental Capacity podcast. You can find a blog with the links mentioned and uh, more details on each of the sections of the Act at uh, www.takeorally.com. You can also find Take Orally on both Facebook and Twitter. For information about research and education opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.